Welcome back to the draft pod of Resball with my guy, Jam Hines, as we give our very first big boards here. We're going to give overarching, like how we put these big boards together, what our philosophies were. We'll give our big boards one through 20, quiz each other on the big boards. And then at the end, end of the question, that's really kind of the question for this draft. Let's get started. everybody it's time to reveal big boards with jam and myself before we get started jam let everybody know where they can find you hey what's up everybody happy new year excited to get into this episode here and talk about uh, our boards and you can find my work at draft digest and follow me on twitter uh, as well at jam on the boards so again we are revealing our big boards today for the 2024 NBA draft, it's our first reveal. We're going to reveal top 20s. Before we reveal our boards each, I did want to talk about, for me, how I formed the big board coming through. Is This is a year where it's been all over the place. Some guys started the year number one and then fell down, and some guys were kind of out of the running, but it popped up. It's been the most fluid, the most movement I can remember in a draft in a while. So for me and how I've formed the big board this year where things have been very, very, very flexible, Number one, production can't be ignored. There are certain guys, and if you've looked at other big boards, you've noticed this trend as well of like, this guy's producing really well internationally. This guy's producing really well in college. This guy's producing really well over in Australia or whatever. And you just can't ignore it when the rest of the field might not be doing that. But the number two thing is I think the film has to match the positives because the difference between like the top five, top seven-ish and people below that I think our guys were like they're producing, but there are also things in the film study that you're like, Oof, I can't get behind that. My example for this is Isaiah Collier, which we'll get into here, where Isaiah Collier's production is really good. You look at the counting stats, they've been fine. They are worthy of like pushing up into top five territory. But then you watch the film. I have brought it up before that UC Irvine game wasn't great. The Long Beach State game wasn't great. He's just had a lot of lackadaisical defensive effort. The turnovers were really, really, really bad at the beginning of the year, so that didn't match. And then when he chilled those out, his free throw numbers are like below 60%. So that's what I mean when I say that production can't be ignored. But the film also has to match those positives. So the guys at the top have those two things. But at the same time, why he was Collier is the example beforehand. The upside guys, upside, quote unquote, are all over the place. Like even guys that might be ranked 30th, maybe even guys in the second round, there are guys there that do have like these legitimate upside to where they could be all-star level players, but the production might not match or there's just something in there that doesn't take away from their ability to still have that upside and other people to sell them on that upside. It's just in this draft, like Collier, all over the place. And then in this early going, for me personally, I put the consistent guys at the top. The guys that like they might have a bad game, but then they don't have like three or four bad games in a row. They've been more consistent in their skills or they've been more consistent in their day in, day out production. 
With one exception, though, for me, I do have one exception up at the top, and I'll get into that here when I reveal my big board. So that's kind of how I form my board, Jim. How did you put yours together? Yeah, I appreciate the way you broke down yours and just sharing how you put yours together. I think um, before I kind of get into my process, the production, absolutely, you got to have, no matter what's going on, if you like a prospect or if you don't, like the production is something that just simply cannot be denied. There's context for it, of course, but the production at the end of the day is something that a prospect can always hang their hat on at, at the end of the day. And what you can do the same as an evaluator as well. And just that, the consistency that comes with that production as well. So for me, like I don't put together my big board. It's like on paper, I should say until the first of the year. So this is the first time I'm putting together. I have a top 20 and then incrementally I'll add guys as I continue to get more comfortable placing them until we obviously get to the end of the process. So for me, once I'm watching um, throughout the year, of course, and the different kind of cycles um, where see guys in high school, whatever the settings are, I'm always kind of having like a mental reminder and a mental evaluation that's like, all right, this guy's in this type of range. This is a mid first, mid to late first, this is early second. So that's kind of what I'm doing every time I'm watching and kind of keeping that in my mind, keeping that fresh for when it's time to put together the big board. So I take that in consideration. And then once I put that in the paper, I'm also thinking about, all right, when you, at the end of the day, when we look 10, 15 years from the draft, when you do a redraft, who goes number one? That's just simply how I look at big boards. Once you look back at that draft, what was your order? And it's obviously lots of things that goes into what gets you there, you know, um, and fits a big thing as well, too. So you're looking for guys who are a little bit fit proof, because I think that certainly for me fluctuates and affects how much my board will fluctuate. Uh, for example, wanting to get, get guys in the right situations in the right spot. Um, you know, there's going to be certain prospects, maybe not in this class, we'll see, but certain ones in the past, like we talk about Chet and Paolo and those guys, they were going to be who they are regardless of where they were. Um, so they were kind of fit proof and there's going to be certain prospects that aren't really like that. Um, Maybe not be the perfect example, he's the one that comes to mind, but Ant Black just having the space around him and letting him kind of do his thing. Um, so those type of situations where uh, fit really does come into play. So that's kind of how I formulated my big board. You need to copyright that fit proof. <laughs> Write that down, everybody, <laughs> for a term now of guys that where you're like, you know what, they'll fit it anywhere. Fit proof. I like it. So, Jam, let's hear your big board first. Jam's going to give his guys 1 through 20, and then I'll give my big board 1 through 20, and we'll start to break it down in a couple different ways. Absolutely. So just running through 1 through 20. All right, let's get to it. So number one, Ron Holland. Two, Nicole Topic. Three, Alex Sar. Four, Matthias Buzelis. Uh, let's say four, uh, Buzelis, five. Zachary Richeste, six, Jacoby Walter, seven, Cody Williams, eight, Rob Dillingham, nine, Isaiah Collier, 10, Kyle Filipowski, 11, Stefan Castle, 12, uh, Yves Messi, 
13, Reed Shepard. 14, TJ Salon. 15, Ryan Dunn. 16, Kevin McCuller. 17, Donovan Klingon. 18, Tyrese Proctor. 19, Trevon Brazil. And 20, Tyler Smith. So that's GMs 1 through 20. My 1 through 20 is at the top, kind of similar. So for me, I have number one, Ron Holland of the G League Ignite. Number two, Nikola Topic over at Red Star now, just went over to the EuroLeague team, injured, unfortunately. Number three is Alex Sar of the Perth Wildcats, another guy who's unfortunately injured right now, big man. Number four, I have Jacoby Walter out of Baylor, wing slash guard. At number five, I have the guy that I said was the one exception I had of like, oh, consistent production, whatever. Number five, I have Aaron Bradshaw, center out of Kentucky, center power forward out of Kentucky. I'm sure we're going to get into him real quick. Number six, I have Zachary Reese in wing forward over at Asheville. Number seven, I have Cody Williams out of Colorado, wing. Number eight, I have Tijan Salon out of Shloway, forward. Number nine, I have Ryan Dunn from Virginia, and I list him at power forward and center. I think he could be a top 10 pick at power forward center. Number 10, I have Reed Shepard from Kentucky, super guard. Number 11, I have Eves Messi, center out of Baylor. 12, I have Isaiah Collier, guard out of USC. 13, I have Maras Buzelas out of the G League, night wing forward. 14, I have Stefan Castle out of UConn. 15, I have Itzan Almansa, a big man out of the G League Ignite. I have his teammate at 16, Tyler Smith, big man out of the G League Ignite as well. 17, I have Kevin McCuller, guard out of Kansas, could play wing as well. 18, I have Wuga Poplar, wing out of Miami. 19, I have Tristan De Silva from Colorado. And then at 20, I have my favorite guard to watch play, Rob Dillingham out of Kentucky. Now that we've revealed our big boards, my first question to you about this, Jim, is who is even in the running for the number one overall pick? For me, I break my my board into tiers, which when I publish this on the Substack, resball.substack.com, you'll see the tiers. And I, I put one through seven, the tier I named it as someone has to emerge. So I think the top seven, really, that was Ron Holland, Topich, Saar, Jacoby Walter, Aaron Bradshaw, Risa Shea, Cody Williams. Those are the guys that could be in the running for number one. I think there's other potential guys there. But for me, from what we've seen in terms of like production and in terms of like, oh, if they get these other skills, they could be a top pick. I think for me, it's like seven guys in the running for number one right now. But I've also joked like, man, it doesn't seem like anybody wants to be the number one pick in this draft because as soon as they get going, Boom, they get injured or, oh, they got going and then bam, they can't shoot or like, oh, they get going and then they just have like five bad games. Who do you think is even in the running for number one this year, Jim? I think you did a great job of covering like it's like, as we all know, you know, covering the draft so far this year, like it's been completely wide open. I think it's, it's as far as seven people being really in that run. I can certainly see that. Um, but at the top, I think it's really in that mix is headed by Alex Saar, uh, Nicole Topic, Ron Holland. Um, uh, Risha Shea, I think he still has uh, a good chance to go number one as well. Um, and also depending what happens with Cody Williams, does he continue to add more volume to his shooting as well? Then you look at someone that's 6'9", 6'10", um, with ball skills, who can defend multiple positions, um, pastoral shoot, um, if he continues to 
to progress that way. And that's someone who fits the moderns game right now, the big wing there. So certainly he'll be right there in that conversation for the first pick. And then Buzelis, I think he's certainly right there as well. Similar reasons why I, why I listed for Cody Williams as well. You know, he is a big wing, can shoot, although some struggles this year, but historically he's be able to shoot the ball. Pastor will shoot that type of skill set. So exactly the type of stuff that you're looking for. So anywhere between like five to seven prospects are firmly within that mix. And I certainly believe Alex Starr is probably the safest number one pick um, out of this group, just from his ability to be able to protect the rim, to be able to be switchable, defend multiple positions out on the island, be a play finisher. And then, of course, the class that he's shown as a shot maker um, and the shot creator as well to be able to space the floor. Yeah, I agree with that, too, in terms of Sar being the safest one. Even if he doesn't shoot, everything else you can buy into as an NBA big man. I also think he's a very underrated passer in the DHO game and stuff they do with him at purse as shades of a Bam out of bio. He's not going to be at that level because rarely any big man ever is, but he could do some of those things that can unlock. And I've said it before, Sam Bassini on the Game Theory podcast said he reminds him, Alexander Saar reminds him of Nick Claxton. I mean, if he's a Nick Claxton anywhere near that, that's definitely worth the number one overall pick in this draft. Top big man who's at the top of the true shooting percentages recently in NBA. Seems like every year now, one of the best shot blockers in the NBA that you can build as a foundation of your defense rim protector. Yeah, I buy into that. The other two guys that I don't have in the top seven that I think like if they just get on a hot streak the rest of the season are still back in number one contention is Isaiah Collier. Like I've said before, he's I use him as an example because his range is all over the place. And really all he would have to do, in my opinion, is look like an average shooter. If he was shooting like 33 percent, 36 percent anywhere in there, even 32 percent, I think, on like four to five a game. I think a lot of people would just buy into it because he's a good athlete, number one, and he can pass the rock. A lot of people kind of hand wave off the turnover stuff as a young guy, too, because a lot of young guys have turnover issues like that. So if you're going to be gun shy about taking a young point guard who has turnover issues, probably go do something else. And the other one is Modest Buzelis, only because when you get that label of number one pick before you even get into your draft year, like that draft process, there are scouts that believe in you. And I'm sure there are still people that are just saying like, hey, the G League program isn't that great for him. Just wait. He's coming back from injury. So I'm sure he still has fans in front offices since he got that stamp on him early on because those fans in the front office were the ones who were saying number one and they don't want to be wrong. And if he gets on a hot streak and he shot very well, he shot some like 42% from three on good volume at Sunrise Christian. He can get back on a hot streak. He's one where I'm like, I don't think he'll be a bad shooter. I just think he's in a bad slump right now. But man, his production just ain't matching it. Anybody else for you like that we've talked about that you're like, you know, I think they're still legitimately in the number one overall pick consideration. They would just have to do a couple of different things. I think you pretty much covered everyone just to give um, someone else some love and, and uh, a boost. We can, I can potentially see is Stefan Castle. I think we know how valuable he can be as a defender, you know, a six, 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 seven with his length, athleticism as well. And he's been able to show that 
um, coming back from injury and everything as well. But for him to be able to continue to progress as a shooter, show more of his offensive game with the ball in his hands, and I think that's something that scouts do want to continue to see and NBA teams want to see from him. And he's on one of the best teams in the country, so he's going to have that spotlight on him as well. And I can certainly see once we get into the conference tournament or really the NCAA term, but once, you know, when scouts are really locking in on these games and these are games that really, really matter, if he can have some very productive eye-opening games on some big stages, I think that will really can catapult him back up to, to that number one spot consideration. Yeah, definitely. The next question that we want to tackle, though, is what's the cutoff point for this draft? And what do I mean cutoff point? I mean, at what point are you like, okay, these are the guys that have to be drafted. Like, there's no excuse for them not to be drafted. And then after that, you can kind of make a case for anybody else. And the field is wide open. Every draft has it. Some of them, it goes to like 25 really good drafts. Some of them, it only goes to like 10. What's the cutoff point for you to where you're like, okay, these are the guys that I feel strongly like have to be drafted this year. And then after that, the field is wide open and you can argue for just about anybody. Honestly, it's 30 too much. And I say that because I feel like despite some of the wars this class might have or is perceived to have, I do think it is relatively deep and you can find some good quality role players, some guys who can eventually become starters, but certainly some quality rotation players where they're high-end, medium rotation players but just some real contributors up and down throughout the draft. It may not necessarily be those 10-year starters throughout or those guys who are going to flirt with all-star bursts and those type of things, but as far as some quality contributors, I think there are to be had um, throughout the draft and a good amount of them. So somewhere in that 25 to 30 ranges is where I'm initially thinking. See, I'm going to push back on that. I think it's 14. My tier of too too much talent to bump further down is 12 to third, 12 to 14. Collier, Buzelas, Castle. Those are the three that I'm like, I feel like that's the cutoff point there and why I bumped them down because I have major reservations about all three. Isaiah Collier, Buzelas, Castle. But I cannot justify putting them lower than 12 to 14. And really, you could interchange any of them if you want to put Castle at the top of that. If you want to put... Collier at the bottom or Bozellis at the top, whatever. Well, that's fine with me. After that, I think it's just like super wide open. I I hate using this example because it does bother me, but I've heard the argument from multiple draft people now, Rafael Barlow, the no ceilings guys. Uh, I believe even like Mavs draft has made this argument of like, well, Kevin McCullough is like getting in a lottery range that tells you how bad this draft is. And while I don't like necessarily agree with that, I think it's more like Kevin McCullough is really good and teams that pick down in that range, like, you know, below 11 to 30, they need that guy with that skill set. And the further you go down in the first round, guys like Denver, teams like Denver, teams like Milwaukee, they want somebody like that that can shoot the three, that can pass, that can defend at an elite level. But I mean, there's not a lot of other underclassmen really like separating themselves, in my opinion, once you get out of 14. Even somebody I really like, like Milan Momchilovic, who I have at 27. And then I have Proctor like further down at 34. Like there's real cases. These guys should not come out this year because they have a lot more to work on. But at the same time, like I understand your argument, too, because 
at the same time, like, do they take the chance and come back and maybe like lose a spot, maybe lose production? Because proctors that do, you know, they're putting guys in and out. It's not like his spot's safe every year, right? And then uh, Momchilovich, like, definitely needs to work more on like movement skills and defense and those things. So, but at the same time, like you're saying, Somebody like that probably stands out more in this draft. It's why I still have Momchilovic in the first round because there's not a better shooter that you can rank over him in the late than the late first round that has that kind of a size. And that's going to be the difficult spot, I think, for those, especially those underclassmen that maybe like not everybody is quite sold on them. They just have to know like enough people or one or two people are sold on them enough in a draft where the cutoff point is somewhere between 14 and 30. That they're like, okay, I don't think there's going to be another year where it's quite that, like, where it's a little bit more set. And, like, I don't know if I should just jump in now when the field is wide open or if I should wait uh, because the field is also wide open and that could work against my favor. And I think the great thing about this is this as well is that this year with the new CBA, if you're declaring you want to get drafted, you have to be at the combine. That's just simply what it is. So they're going to get some great feedback, all those guys that you listed in those situations. And for them to be able to get that feedback, especially in this draft as well, too, is going to be incredibly important um, for them to be able to really know where they are and be able to get promises. And specifically for the guys that you mentioned with Tyrese Proctor and Milan as well, I think both of those guys, could come back if they really want to, but it's also weighing more so on Tyrese's, Tyrese Proctor's situation. I think he's going to be there next year. I don't think there's any real pressure for him to leave or anything like that. I feel like that is his spot. It'll be a chance to play with the returning guy that was McCain's coming back, Sean Stewart, of course, Cooper Flag, Isaiah Evans, Darren Harris. Um, with all those guys coming in as well, too. So I think he'll be in a good situation. I don't want to get too much into it. I'm sure we'll do an episode um, about guys who just stay and go at some point. But with him, I think it's all he really can do is continue to improve as a shooter. And I think his shot making is has been what it needs to be for the most part in those flashes to show you that it's something that's still there. Obviously, with the consistency, but I feel like if people give that same type of grace to Kyle Filipowski with his shooting projection, some of that has to go to Tyrese Proctor, too, considering they're both very good-looking shooters and in history they've shot pretty well, too, and it all looks very projectable, and they've shown shot-making um, versatility as well, too. And then for Milan, like, yeah, I, like you said, with the shooting at 6'8", six, 6'9", six, this is absolutely ridiculous. I love this combination of pure shooting and tough shot making as well. And it's like the defense, of course, is the concern. Not much you really can do about that if he comes back to school or not. But what he is, though, he is 6'8". He, he will be physical and he's not going to back down. He will compete defensively. So now but we, this segment's supposed to be where we quiz each other on our big boards each. But I mean, the elephant in the room for us anyway, y'all can hear the or see the big board from me yet. But Jam and I disagree completely on Kyle Filipowski. Do you want to go first and ask me a question or do you want me to ask you a question on flip? I'll, I'll ask you a couple of questions. I'm curious this 
Why is it? Why are you so low on him? Is it because you are not a believer in the shooting? So right now, Kyle Filipowski's three-point percentage is 41.2%. I don't believe in a shot. The way I frame it that way is because anybody that's jumping into the story now is going to be like, you're out of your mind. This guy's shooting 40% from three. Like, what are you doing? Well, two games ago, Kyle Filipowski was shooting 31% from three. Against Georgia Tech, he went four or five from three. That upped his overall three-point percentage to 37%. And then one game ago against, uh, I mean, who they play? Why am I blinking out? He went like four or four again in their last game that they played. Actually, I have his page up now. Why am I saying the blink on it? Look at these game logs real quick. The Pittsburgh game. Say it again. The Pittsburgh game. So it was Pitt. Two two games ago was Pitt four or four from three. And then the last game was Georgia Tech where he was four or five from three. And then after this Georgia Tech game, it's magically 41.5%. It's two games. It's two games. And I believe in this for anybody. If the if the reverse was true as well to where like he was shooting lights out and then he went 04, 05 and knocked the percentage down, I would be saying the same. It's the same coin, just the opposite side. I would be saying like, no, believe in a shooting. It's just like two games, whatever. Right. Um, the other thing is Kyle Filipowski shooting 68 percent from the free throw line. That's concerning to me. Anytime it's you're supposed to be a shooter and you're shooting under 7% or under 70% or under 7%. I mean, it would be an even bigger issue, but if you're supposed to be a shooter and you shoot under 70% from the free throw line, it's concerning. Also these last six games flip has shot, you know, absolutely red hot 58.8% from three, but he shot worse than that percentage at the free throw line, 57.7% from the free throw line in those same six games. I'm not going to say I don't believe in his shooting, even though I might have just said that. I'm just confused about his shooting. And to me, I was sold on him. He was sold to me as like the best shooter in last year's class. Like, I don't care that he's a big. You know, people were telling me, nah, this guy's got a good stroke. And then he shot like 28.2% from three. And it's like, maybe just had a rough year. Again, starts this year out cold, 31% from three. Across those first 16 games. And then the free throw shooting is like, what's going on with that? While his three-point percentage goes sky high, his free throw numbers go really down. I also think he's a center. The great thing about him, and, and I told him this before we started, I spent all day yesterday re-watching Kyle Filipowski film because I was like, man, maybe I'm just a Duke hater. Because keeping it real, I am a Duke hater. I don't like Duke. I was like, maybe that's just bleeding over into my analysis here. And the one thing I really liked about Flip is he's gotten so much better as a shot blocker this year. And I'm like, okay, he can play center. And his passing is pretty good, but his passing is also like bailing him out of bad situations. I I would venture a guess that 50% of his passes are like, oh no, I'm about to shoot this, but somebody's going to block me and he passes out of it. And he always passes great, but I'm like, I don't know like if you could get away with that in the NBA as much. He's also a really good passer on like the baselines, low block, mid post, whatever. Again, I don't know who's going to give him that kind of a role in the NBA or if he's going to see that kind of shot. His three-point attempt rate is also really low. Um, uh, we can look at it here quick. If, if he took more too, I would feel a lot more confident and be like, oh yeah, he'll be fine. But last year was 28.9% three-point attempt rate. And this year, Phillips three-point attempt rate is down to 24.4%. So 
I'm like, oh, he can pass. He got better as a shot blocker. His threes are going down, his free throw percentage. I'm just very confused on like what he even is. I know he can score in the post. And then the last thing I'll say is two games really, 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 unfortunately, like stick in my mind. Eve's messy pretty much took his lunch money in that Baylor game. That was a bad game. And then the Syracuse game, I don't know if you remember this play, but it's like early in the first half. They get flipped wide open. I mean, he's so wide open. Nobody's there. He's driving in to the paint, but Udemans runs out of nowhere. Him and Flip are about to, you know, converge right there, just outside of the restricted area. They converge. Can you guess what happens? They block. No, but if Flip stops and puts up a floater, I would almost like like it if he were blocked more, because then you can just be like, oh, you know, Judah Mintz caught him. But to stop when Judah Mintz is like six three, maybe one hundred and seventy pounds, maybe like, what are you doing? Like, run that guy over. I don't care even if you get call for a charge. The physicality, I don't want to say he's not physical, but I question like the physicality because those things, the messy game against an actual NBA center and then things like that with Judah Mintz were like, dude, what are you doing? Just run that guy over. There's just a lot of questions for me with Flip that I just can't put him first round right now. If he came back next year and like just shot the lights out, then yeah, obviously. But right now, I don't know, man, I'm so torn on him. And when I've looked at him, I'm like, okay, if he doesn't shoot it well, do you see him as like somebody else? Could you give him a comp? And I'm like, you know what? I could. I could see him as like Mason Plumley with how the shot blocking has gotten better and the passing is there. But this is also a personal philosophy, draft philosophy thing, too, because I'm like, how many guys would I take a chance on before I was like, oh, I'm going to draft like somebody who's going to be like Mason Plumley? And for other people, it might be like, no, I'm going to put Mace up and the first round for me personally, I'm like, I'd rather take a chance on some other guys because particularly in the modern NBA, I don't know like how much Mason Plumley would get run from day one. Yeah. I, I, I don't quite see him as a Mason Plumley type of guy. I see Mason more as kind of the, the rim runner play finisher type of type of big, um, who does offer some, some passing upside as well too, some underrated passing upside. I think there's really a lot to unpack about with Flip. Um, and you really hit the head on a lot of what it is to like and maybe not to like or be concerned about with Flip. It comes down to the shooting. For me, I'm just watching him in high school and, you know, the, the year and the change that he's been at Duke. I never saw him as, all right, like, this is a shooter. Like, this is someone who's going to be able to upper 30s or be this incredible like this is like his main calling card for me he's always been a good shooter but it's he wasn't I never looked at him as someone who's going to be one of the top three to five shooters in his class maybe if you go to bigs of course absolutely but as far as shooters so I would never sell him as a shooter and then I guess it can also be looked at as semantics, but I think kind of the art of scouting is semantics are incredibly important. So when you are looking at him as a shooter, what level of shooter are you looking for out of him? And I guess looking at it this way as well, too, 
what type of shooter do you think he is now? And are you expecting for him to be to meet whatever the draft position is or to meet his ultimate value of what you're hoping? So I guess that's kind of tied together anyway. Like, is he someone that's he's a capable shooter where he can knock it down if he's open? How much um, how much gravity does he still hold? You know, is he really stretching the floor? Can he still have enough to attack closeout to open up the rest of his game for him to be able to go put the ball on the deck for a couple of dribbles and make it pass what he can do it or get all the way to him and do those things? Or are you expecting him to be like this incredible weapon where teams have to hug up on him? He has this tremendous gravity. So I think it all depends what evaluators ultimately think the level of shooter he is and how much that is tied into the rest of his overall game and unlocking that. For me, I think he, at worst, is going to be a capable shooter. And to try to put that with numeric value, low 30s is what I'm realistically expecting. If he if he has a year or two issues like 38, I wouldn't be surprised. But when you're looking at what you're expecting, consistent trying to project forward, Somewhere in that low 30s, I think that's enough for him to be able to still have enough volume to stretch the floor, especially at the five spot, for him to still be able to attack closeouts. And he also is going to do I'm having a lot of different stuff where he can do some things where he's trailing above the break, where you can do pick and pop. So he has that type of versatility as well. So if a, um, if a team sees that, oh, he's to the, he's to the pick and pop three here, then he said a catch and shoot three here, and they have to see that shot making in their mind. It's like, all right, even if he's missed the next like seven to eight threes, it's still in their mind that all right, this big guy, he can shoot, he can do these things. He's doing out of different sets and actions. And I think that's enough to unlock the rest of his game. I think to have him in that top to like I do, you have to have him at least being a capable shooter. Anywhere above that, which if he's sniffing top five, which some people do have him there, I think you kind of expect for him to be that like 38, 39% shooter. Um, and then we'll try not to be too long with it here. I know I'm already there, but defensive. No, no, no. That's your guy. You got to defend it. Yeah. <laughs> and one more thing offensively, though, with this passing, you put him in the pick and roll as a short roll passer. I really like him in uh, that as well. You can attack and mismatch if you want to get him the post to mid post and do those things um, and draw the double if they're going to double and he can't score in the post. I do share some of your concerns. It's not, I, I, I'm with you because it's kind of hard to describe because it's not like a lack of physicality because he's not afraid of it, but it's just not a consistent aggressiveness with this physicality. Um, particularly as a play finisher. And I think some of that is because he's not the most explosive athlete, but he still has a big body. Um, and he'll get a lot of offensive rebounds when he's missed his own shot and tipped it back in or got the second chance and those type of things. Um, but I think just what he can do, being able to space the floor enough, can score in the post with the right matchups, pass, dribble, shoot type of big, and then defensively, I always thought him as a five no matter what. I just couldn't really see him defending fours, and especially 
ideally for me, a lot of the fours are essentially just big wings in the league. So it's like, do you want him really defending that many wings? Um, I like him as the five playing drop coverage. He has very good hands, quick hands, being able to use those hands, mobility, being uh, playing that drop coverage and the improved shot blocking, like you said. So I think he is worth it in that lottery. Like I said, I have him at 10. We'll see if he stays there the rest of the way. But I think top 20 for sure for me, I think it's a top 20 lock barring any type of drastic shooting spot where he, I don't know, just can't hit anything and just does not look projectable anymore. But I think he's a top 20 lock for me. Yeah, he's somebody I will have to move up because the film study did help me to be like, you know what? He's not what he was built as. Is this like stretch four and like a knockdown shooter? But the defensive improvements are for real, legit. It would be like the main selling point that I would give teams if I was his representation. It was like, look, he's a defender now. He's over one steal per game last year. He's over one steal per game this year. He's almost at two blocks per game this year. Like that's the kind of production you want. And anybody talking about stocks, like definitely looking at Kyle Filipowski. He's got active hands on defense always. He's always looking to get in passing lanes and, you know, poke the ball out of the ball handlers, even though he's not the most athletic guy. And staying at center does that. And the passing to the any big that can pass like that is an immediate mismatch advantage. My last question for you on flip, though, is like, what would that comp be? Because that's the hard part of like, once I threw the shooting out, I was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, you know, you don't agree with the Mason Plumley, but I'm like something like that because Plum Dog can like pass really good. When he was on the Pistons, it totally changed my total perception of him because I was like, man, this guy really sees the floor well. And I see that with flip to those those um, flashes of passing to where he could get to that level. But then I was like, okay, if he's like, like you said, a capable shooter, I'm like, oh, maybe it's Mike Muscala. And then I looked at Mike Muscala and he's shooting 37% for his career from three. And uh, Kelly Olenek was my first one. I'm sorry. Complexion comparisons again. But I looked at his, his, you know, percentages and it's like 37%. He shot multiple seasons at 40. I'm like, I don't want to put that on flip either. Maybe it's something like Dwayne Dedman. That's the other one. But I think it's more than that if you wanted to bind him as a shooter because Deadman didn't play that long. And I think with Flip, again, the why I use the Plumlee uh, comparison is like Plumlee played a long time. I feel pretty strongly that, you know, Flip is going to do that as well. He's not going to be like an all-star. He's not going to be top level, but he's going to be a consistent dude. And that's why I went to Mike Muscala and like, you know, um, Kelly Olenek first just because same thing. Like that's exactly what people said about them. It's like, you know, they're not going to be the standout guy, but they're going to play a long time because of their smarts and for them, their their stretching ability. But what's the comp then if if Flip's still a capable shooter? I'm still looking for a comp for him, um, but I do like some of the ones that you name and those ones that have come to mind to me early with him too. And of course, Mo Wagner, I'm still going to do complexion com- comparison, but if it fits, it fits. And that's kind of where his game really reminds me of, um, you know, with the blend of him and Kelly Olenek. Uh, when you talk about that guys who are, you know, six, 11, seven feet do have ball skills, aren't the most athletic, um, but you can do a lot of different things. Well, so I, I it's kind of where I at with him right now. All right, so now your turn to ask me a question about my board. Or you can be anything of like, what's wrong with you? Why do you have this? Or like, hey, man, talk to me about this. What's your question on my 1 through 20? 
So there was, was a couple things that that came to mind. Um, but one of the things that I want to ask you, let's, let's see what number he was. But I wanted to see and kind of just get your thoughts on having um, Izan Almanza. I know you are a big fan of his, but I just can't get there at 15. And I'm like late first, early second at best. Right now, I'm I'm just not seeing it. I'm just not seeing it. I, so I just want to kind of get your, get your selling point on him. Number one, he's a pick and roll big, which is always going to be something that every team needs. I think he's an underrated defender. He's averaged over a block per game pretty much throughout the entire G League season. And if you go into real GM and like look up any player, look at their game logs, especially for international players and for the G League guys, because they will try to break it up in the regular page. But if you go to the game logs, it will give you a cumulative and it's easier to look at than the regular page, in my opinion. It will give you a cumulative view of like everybody's stats from every game, whether it was in like an exhibition cup or whether it was in regular season or an in-season tournament kind of thing. And uh, with Almanza, like you can see the production was kind of black in the what do they call it? The showcase cup. But then as soon as the regular season hit in, he was like double figure, double figure, double figure, double figures in scoring. And he's one of three guys, in my opinion, that's actually like stepped up and done something for this G League Ignite team when by and large, like guys like Derry Darlin was supposed to be a guy, but he's done almost nothing. Maras has really struggled a lot. And then it's been Ron, it's been Tyler Smith, and then it's been Ethan who's have to pick up the slack. The one thing is the shooting at the free throw line is a concern. I don't think Ethan Almanza should be shooting threes. I know they've tried and there have been people that have been like, ah, here, you know, but don't do that. But Ethan Almanza has been shooting like 40 something percent at the free throw line. You can't be doing that in the modern NBA. You know, back in the day with Shaq and Big Ben, you can get away with those things, but not now. That's somebody that's just going to get, you know, hunted and fouled and hacking eats on will become a thing that is absolutely something that he'll have to do. He's also crashed the glass really well. He's been the most consistent rebounder on this G League Ignite team. I like him there a lot on the glass. I mean, he just does modern big man thing that you want from NBA centers, passing, being able to protect the rim, being able to understand positioning and then being a pick and roll big. And then I just can never like disregard international accolades and international play like that. The most decorated international prospect since Luka Doncic. You can't throw that stuff out, in my opinion. That can't be meaningless. And we've just had too many instances of guys that have track records like this. Of like, oh, they played really well at this one FIBA tournament. Or, oh, there's this guy that played really well for their uh, international team. And then it kind of gets thrown by the wayside. And then when they become a good player, like, oh, yeah, I remember when they won all these awards and stuff. I, I want to put Tyler Smith over him, but that's really the thing to me that I'm like, I can't do it. If he kept producing like he was producing in those exhibition cup games where it was like single digits and like he's really just rebounding and blocking shots, I would get it. But when he when he turned it on in the regular season, I was like, yep, there it is. I can see. And for him and Ron, my my uh, argument there, too, with both of them is like, look at that surrounding team. Like that surrounding team sucks. And both Ron and Isan, they need shooters. They've had John Jenkins. They've had Tyler Smith. Everybody else has just been building brick houses, man. They, it's just a bad 
I think that should be taken into account for all the G League guys from top to bottom. Is This has just been a really bad roster construction. Like all these guys are skilled, but they don't fit together as a team and they don't complement each other. But Ron, Eatson, and Tyler Smith have been able to still find some success and show NBA skills. That's why I've ranked them all highly. So that's the pitch on Eatson. Forehead, do you see... So offensively, I've just seen him more as a play finisher. Um, is is that your take on him offensively as well, or do you see him a little bit more as a creator or being able to be an offensive hub as a facilitator, whether he's working from the elbows, DHOs, or does he does his game not warrant that type of usage? I think it's like eighty percent play finisher, twenty percent facilitator is what I would would sell him as well I think he has more potential than that I wouldn't I wouldn't go out of my way to be like no he's going to be like bam out of bio or anything like that like you got to keep it real especially in this draft where nobody stood out like that if he stood out like that then he would be up in the top 10 top five type consideration so I really do think this is more like towards the Nick Claxton uh, end of that type of a, a center uh, I'm trying to think of another because like I always use Nick Claxton because to me, he's my ideal like, OK, if he doesn't shoot type of center, then I want somebody like Nick Claxton. That's my ideal. So something around there like Mitchell Robinson's another one. I'm going to keep it real. I don't really like using him as much because he gets hurt so often, but he's another one that he works. He doesn't shoot. He doesn't do the modern big man things. But every time you watch him play, you're like, oh, yeah, this guy's really good. And Isaiah Hardenstein's probably going to be my new example for this as well, with how well he's been able to play. I would that that might be the one that I would sell people on with Etzan. Is like, look, Hardenstein kicked around. He had that same thing of, oh, maybe you can shoot one day and all this. And once they threw that out, they realized like, oh, here's a guy that can defend. Here's a guy that can pass and crash the glass. I think it's probably something more towards that, like Isaiah Hardenstein. That would be my pitch anyway. Got it. And there's one more. This is probably the, I was saving this one for last. It's probably the leading one. I think you may <laughs> wait for me to bring him up as well. Uh, we're going to stick with the bigs. But at number five, you have Aaron Bradshaw. Coming into the season, I definitely had him when I was kind of going through my mental place from the big board as the lottery type guy. So I don't think we would say five is like absolutely outrageous or anything like that. Um, especially, like I said, when you come into the season, there's a lot of hype for him and um, justify hype anyway. What is the sell right now and what makes you comfortable with him at five right now? Seven footer who can shoot block shots can get out there and run in transition. That's like a good starting set for me of different things. He could play power forward. He could play center. Like if Alexander Saar had that kind of a shot that Aaron Bradshaw has, like he'd be the undisputed number one pick. There would be no argument from anybody about that. So that's the main thing. Also, it's the, like I've said before, the cow clamps. There's always one or two guys every year to where you look at them in Kentucky and you're underwhelmed, but then they get in the league and bam, they blow up. Coach Hal's famous for never letting his big shoot threes, even when they're Carl Anthony Towns. So that was another thing to me factoring Arguably into it. the best shooting big <laughs> Yeah, and Bam Adebayo, too. He didn't look that great in Kentucky. He looked fine. And even me, when the, the Heat took him, I was like, what are you guys doing? 
you know, but there, lo and behold, he blew up there. So that is a big factor of it for me. And then I said in my notes, when I put this together, you know, Bradshaw hasn't done anything to bury himself yet. And then he went and just fouled like four times in like four minutes in this recent Texas A&M game. But it's one bad game. Like you can't hold one bad game against anybody. Right. I just buy into the package. And 2013 draft is really what sticks in my mind for this draft of like people are going to bury it. But every draft, and I guess I shouldn't just say 2013. But 2013 sticks in my mind because everybody was bearing that draft. And we got Giannis and we got Rudy Gobert out of it. I'm looking for people that you can, not that they're going to be that type of guy, but like, okay, try and find the guys that have this real legitimate upside that people, other people might be overlooking and that you can look back in the profile and be like, you know what? They did this stuff. I mean, Bradshaw blocked like 3.2 shots in the EYBL, I believe. He shot it well before. And again, you just watch him move. He's an athlete. You factor in the Kentucky bump, or as I call it, the Cal Clamps. That's why, to me, I can't bump him down yet. But if he keeps doing stupid things like that, then, yeah, he's going to go down the board. No questions about that. Yeah, like you said, there's certainly a lot of appeal for any big who can protect the rim, who can be switchable, and, of course, can step out and shoot the ball as well. Are you... Do you have any concerns about like his frame right now? Is it just like you think he'll add the requisite amount of strength to his frame or that kind of always will be somewhat of an issue for him? I think we throw those questions out now. Chet Holmgren, Victor Weminyama are leading for rookie of the year, right? They're killing it. And we're seeing a little bit more of those skinny type of players. I know Poku's not really playing for the Oklahoma City Thunder, that, but that's only because he got hurt and like guys took his job. But he was producing last year and he was doing really well. And that type of skinnier player is just becoming more apparent to where their skill and their awareness, especially on defense, like wins out over everything else. And then if they can stretch the floor like Chet can, if they can create shots the way Weminyama can, then get out and run in transition the way that Apoku can. Yeah, like I don't think that's as big of a deal anymore. We'll see how that really pans out, especially for top guys like Weminyama. And with chat when they run into Jokic, when they run into Embiid, but they've looked great so far. So for Bradshaw, that's I haven't said that out loud to myself or anything, but yeah, that factors into it too. Is like I think the skinny guy concern is less of a thing now. Yeah, I think it should be less of a concern, less of a thing, like you were saying as well. For me, when you have that type of frame, skinny guys like you brought up was I mean, when Bayamas obviously is. <laughs> a real outlier situation chat to an extent too, but just in general, when you have someone with that type of frame, I feel like it comes down to toughness. When you combine toughness with the ability to be a high level or elite shot blocker, I'm not worried about the frame and you holding up because end of the day, like you're going to take your lumps, but if you're going to keep coming back, and dishing out some of your own, with, you know, with shot blocks and alteration, things like that. And you do, do what you do is as far as being able to defend in space as well, too. It's not a, that much of a concern at all. Yeah. And a couple other guys, like we don't want to use like the best of the best as the prime examples of like, yeah, oh, the skinny guy. I think Isaiah Jackson on the Pacers, he hasn't played a lot, but he still carved out a role. And been there. He's like 6'10, 206. And then Brandon Clark, he's supposed to be wing. He's like 6'8, 200 ish. He looks skinny, 
And he's carved out a role when he's healthy as an actual big man, really good floater, explosiveness, able to protect the rim because he perfected the big man stuff and can get out and move the way other centers and other power forwards cannot do. So do you have any other questions for me, Mr. Hines? No, those were uh, the two biggest ones that, that stood out. So I'm going to lead off with Rob. I love Rob Dillingham. But man, number eight, like, I, you don't have to sell me on Rob Dillingham at number eight. Uh, this is more like sell the world because people hate short guards anymore. And they hate, well, a lot of people hate Rob because they don't think he would be able to play defense like at a starter level, at number eight overall pick level. I think anything else at this point, like if you're going to be like, oh, he can't finish, or like, oh, he can't shoot, oh, his game doesn't fit the NBA. Here's a hater at this point. The real questions are defense and how do you deal with the size? I'm very interested to see what his actual measurements are going to be. I think in the Kentucky State list is at 6'3". I think he really might be in that 6'2 range. It's so small, but it's not like he's six feet, six one. Um, and I think that is going to be a positive for him, or at least should be looked at as a positive for him. And we'll see what the wingspan is like, but it looks like it's a decent length, it's serviceable length. But he has competed defensively when he's pressuring the ball at the point of attack, or if he's playing off the ball. Um, he's been able to get in the passing lanes and just be pretty feisty. And I think that's something you're going to have to try to continue to get out of him at the end of the day. Like, he's, he may not ever be a plus defender, nor I, I don't think if you're drafting, you're looking for him to do that. You just look for him to be competitive and serviceable. And I think he can at least be somewhere in that um, area. Because uh, you want him to be able to do that as long as he is producing what he's doing offensively. And I think offensively, it is just really an elite, elite handle. Like, I, when he gets into the league, I don't think it's out of a question to say that he has a top five handle instantly. Somewhere in that range, there's a lot of great ball handlers. But for him to be in the top five mix, I think is absolutely justified. Maybe at the end of the day, you can give me five that are better. But for him to be in that mix, I think that is very, very legitimate. When you combine that with his handle, his shot making ability, and his shiftiness, like it is just nothing like this in this class. And I think he isn't fit proof. You know how we talked about this to, to start at the top. And I think that's what ultimately kind of will push him down boards because it's like, is he going to be your starting point guard? And if he's not, is he your sixth man? I think that's kind of what the the two kind of hopes is. So at the end of the day, if this, if this draft, if you tell me that you got a Jordan Clarkson S, I don't think their games are all that similar, um, but I'm just far as is production as a six-man, that type of punch off the bench. If you're getting, well, I'll just be framing like this so people don't attach him to another player. But if you're getting someone that is a top five, we believe can be a top five, not a starter, but he's going to be a top five, six-man in this class, I think that's something teams should be considering in that lottery range. If you year after year against someone's going to be a top five, six-man, Someone that can compete and win that six man award because this is the punch off the bench. 
that's mm-hmm. something that is nothing to sneeze at, especially with someone that can get as hot as he can. And we haven't even touched on the playmaking, which I think continues to shine with his ability to be able to create paint touches on his own. He doesn't have to paint the pick and roll. He can break you down. He can spray it out. Those paint touches, just drop it off. All those type of things. He's still going to be able to make some advanced reads as well. And I think, well, I've talked about it before, when I saw him for the first time live two years ago at a Christmas tournament with Don Academy, I just fell in love with this kid's confidence. Like, he is just ultra confident and nothing is really going to bother him on the court. It's the constant belief in himself. I love the way that he's adjusted at Kentucky, coming off the bench, playing with other stars, being able to play next to other point guards as well, which adds to his role versatility as well, despite being, you know, 6'2", 6'3". So I think we have someone like that who can score the ball the way that he, the way that he can. I think ultimately, if he, he's a great shot maker, tough shot maker, and creator. If his shooting level kind of declines, I think similar to I make mean, a lot of this argument for a lot of guys, but particularly for him too. If his shooting takes a step back, then I think he may be in trouble. It's just like how good of a shooter is he really in the, at the end of the day? And I think he's a good shooter, but is all that sustainable? And I think uh, at this point it certainly can be, but I think if he goes in a cold spell, then I think, and you know, if you're getting the same looks that he's been getting all year, same ones he's creating, he's just missing. What does that look like at the end of the day? Yeah, two names I'm reminded of when I watch him are Rod Strickland and Kenny Anderson. He and Kenny Anderson are probably similar size. I don't know that Rob, I, like, I don't want to put that on Rob because Kenny was a bucket man in those first like five, seven years. But then he also transitioned to be more like off the bench, six man kind of guy. And Rod has always been somewhere between like fourth guy, to like eighth guy. To me, that would be the selling point for Rob Dillingham. It's like, remember these guys? Because if you were around and you were alive and you watched basketball at that time, I mean, those guys were awesome. They were just play playground legends. They had that three ball game that came in and again, a handle. Both of those guys handles just impeccable. Some of the best handles you'll ever see. All those things to me are what I see when I see Rob Dillingham and why. Uh, again, I don't know why people if you're still down on him now, you're a hater because he still has all these other things like Rod and that Kenny had, man. So next question is about the big man, Donovan Klingon. Number one, are you not scared away by that foot injury? I wouldn't say scared away. I'm totally concerned and medicals will be at the top of the list for him. And then coming into this season, I, I wasn't that high on, on him in the first place. A lot of people had him. I like him, but a lot of people have him like top 10, some top five. But he's always been in that like after the lottery. Just right outside the lottery. I understand someone gets them late in the lottery. Uh, but for me, I'm trying to just decide, like, what level of a rim protector shot blocker is he? Like, what is he? I know the obvious comparison people want to make is Walker Kessler. And I think Walker Kessler is at least a level above the shot blocker rim protector that Klingon is. Um, so I'm trying to figure out where he is with guys like that, 
Um, Mark Williams, you know, is he a better shot blocker than Nick Claxton? Like, where is he in this range of rim protectors in the NBA now? And then, of course, in the class, too. Like, is is Amici a better shot blocker and rim protector, which I think he is? So I think that kind of bumps him down as well. So I think he is a uh, very good shot blocker and rim protector. I wouldn't say elite. I don't think he's going to be Walker Kessler type. Um, And I'm also a bit concerned about the athleticism around the rim. But at the end of the day, he is, you know, seven plus feet and is a solid finisher, not the finishing lob threat that I ideally would like in that type of rim runner, play finisher, shot blocker, that type of big. And then really, I think that's what he's going to be primarily doing, being a play finisher. Is that any creation to him? I know he shot a couple threes this year and does not look bad at all, but it's not something that teams should really be banking on for him to be able to at the end of the day, if they can get something to him, maybe year four, year five, or wherever the case is, or they let him work on it. Um, but I wouldn't be drafting him, expecting him to eventually spread the floor like you would be for someone like Flip. So what do you say to somebody like me who is going to argue that Donovan Klingon cannot be in the top 20 anymore? Number one, because of the foot injury, any big with lower extremity injuries, like I'm scared off by, I'm sure there are other people, other scouts and People out there that evaluate draft, they're like, I'm just not going to mess with a big that has that lower extremity injuries, particularly one in his size. He's like 265, 285, somewhere in there. I also question like conditioning and is he in shape? He's listed at 285, I believe, by UConn, right? And he looks heavy. And then if the foot injury is on top of that, then that has to be something to keep in check. I don't think actually he'll lose like anything if he loses weight too. I think if anything... He'll gain a little bit more mobility um, and lean muscle and that stuff. But the most concerning thing to me and why I'm like, I can't keep him in top 20 anymore. Uh, November 20th against the University of Texas, Donovan Klingon only played 13 minutes against North Carolina on December 5th. Donovan Klingon only played 19 minutes. And then against Seton Hall in the last game he played before he exited with the injury, Donovan Klingon only played 14 minutes. Particularly the Seton Hall and the Texas game, he was played off the floor because his immobility was a liability that UConn could not get around. How do you answer that? Because to me, that's the more worrisome thing. But I don't remember with a Walker Kessler. I don't remember with like Rudy Gobert or these other dudes who were supposed to be quote unquote limited. I don't remember that happening that often. And maybe I'm misremembering it as well. But the fact that teams can play him off the court, particularly with guys that can just run around and be more more mobile. I mean, Dylan Mitchell played him off the floor in the Texas game. And Dylan Mitchell, six foot eight, two oh five, fantastic athlete. But it just shows you that if you can get somebody that makes Clan move a lot and is a good athlete, an NBA athlete, like you can't play him. I think you bring up some very great points. And I for someone, I, my best guess, or I say my best answer to try to convince someone in that situation would be the value of a defensive anchor and a shot blocker. If you feel okay with the medicals, I think that's something you just can't look past. 
But if the medicals do look good, I think that it's, that's really what you can kind of, I wouldn't say brush to the side, but I wouldn't also say this about the, the injury too. I do think some of the conditioning is tied to the injury because he did come into the season recovering from injury, then he gets hurt again too. So I think that is tied as well. And you have to obviously play, you know, the game of what is the risk factor is, how much of an injury risk is he at the end of the day. But I think if you believe that he is a defensive anchor or can be a anchor for the, the second unit or the first unit, obviously you hope it's the first unit being able to do that. But I think that's mostly the what the sell is someone that can really change the game defensively. I'm not quite there. That's why I have him, you know, at what was it, 17, 18, as opposed to someone that's had him in the top 10 or surefire lottery pick coming to the season right now. But I think you bring up some uh, very valid points about the injury concerns for sure and then essentially being played off the court. All right. So last question is. Give me the sell on Tyrese Proctor. I want to like him. I keep pushing. He's one of the guys I keep pushing down the board because I, I just can't get behind it. In basic counting stats like points per game and stuff, like Tyrese Proctor is basically like fifth on the team at Duke. In minutes played, he's sixth. Caleb Foster is playing more minutes than Tyrese Proctor. What's the sell? Because other than the passing, I don't really see anything that stands out and screams like, hey, take this guy in the first round. Well, first, it does certainly start with the passing, and he's going to be a big point guard for you. And I do value size at that position. Like, he is a legitimate, high-level playmaker out of the pick-and-roll, you know, before, but particularly out of the pick-and-roll can make essentially any pass that you need there with this creativity and vision there. And then I do believe the shot making is there, whether it's either pick and roll, catch and shoot, he can play off the ball. Uh, obviously, when I'm on the ball with his passing ability, but if his ability played next to another guard too, that's some of the sell there. And I know the shooting, I kind of mentioned it a little bit with Flip, I still think he's a very projectable shooter. Looks good. You see the versatility. He'll hit pull-up threes, step-back threes. He gets to the mid-range. Um, the lack of ability to create paint touches on his own and kind of separate, that is the concern for sure offensively. But you just know you're going to be running a lot of pick-and-rolls with him, which is fine with most of the game. And I don't think that you're looking for him to be that number one, two, three option to go break down a defense and do it. Uh, that way as well. And then defensively, he's a good defender. I think he is certainly a positive defender. The pressure that he can apply on the ball with his length and his size, quick hands, can play passing lanes off the ball as well, too. I just believe if the shooting was more consistent, I just don't see how he would go out of the lottery at the end of the day. I think as long as you believe in him being able to be a doesn't have to be a knockdown shooter, but just a reliable and capable shooter, I think that's someone that can be a very, very valuable point guard for you. Where if that even if that is a backup point guard, let's just say 
you get someone late in the first that's going to be a top five backup point guard. I think that's a spot where maybe it's like you've lost a little bit of um, value there, possibly some upside there. But in the, the day, when you go back and do a redraft, if you have someone, and um, I'll bring up Tyus Jones. They do have some similar um, similarities to their game, although obviously Tyrese is bigger. But for one of my things for the selling point during um, uh, his draft was I think that he can seriously become one of the best backup point guards in the league, and that's what happened with Tyus. And there were concerns about him being small. Um, I think we're, people were more into the shooting for Tyus, especially that pull-up that he has. But if you believe you can get someone that can be a valuable rotation player, especially at the point guard spot, um, a spot like that where uh, the value seems to go up, you know, with a wing and those type of positions too, I think he is someone that is justified to go there. What's the sell on him coming out now versus returning and like getting a better three-point shot? I think that's the thing too, is if he just had a more consistent three-point shot, then first round is like a lock. But Particularly for me, I was really sold on Proctor as being the either first or second in terms of returners this year. And I thought his shot would improve a lot more because he took the most threes on Duke last year and he only shot 32%. But my reasoning was like, oh, it'll get better because he had to take a lot of tough shots. He was the main floor spacer on a team that was struggling for it. And then his three-point percentage got better as the year went on. Well, this year, McCain and Roach are lighting it up from three. Caleb Foster's doing better. But, I mean, there's not that much of improvement for for Proctor. And if he just keeps incrementally getting this better, what's what's the pitch on him coming out now versus being like, hey, stay one more year, work on that shot, and you'll be all good? The shot may not come around next year. It's, I mean, there's no guarantee. It's just going to be about feedback. If a team feels that his shot is projectable and it can take these steps to where he can be the shooter they want him to be, whether that's being able to be a catch-and-shoot guy off of others or being able to play the pick-and-roll, which is so comfortable doing and get to the pull-up through, which he's shown he can do. He just comes down to consistency. And it's not like he is a non-shooter. He's not trying to become a non-shooter to a, a good or serviceable shooter. I think he's trying to become a... Um, capable shooter into a good to, to a very good shooter. So I don't think you are working with someone. All right. So when we get a pick a roll, we're just going to drop. We're going to let go ahead and shoot. We're going to go under. We're going to concede that. I just don't think that's the type of defense that he's going to garner. Maybe in certain situations, if he's, you know, cold, but that's not the type of shooter I expect or project him to be long-term. All right. So I think we've exhausted all our questions. Correct. Yeah, we certainly have. So the final thing we're going to talk about here is one of the draft philosophy questions that we've been kicking around for a while. Trying to figure out like where to fit it in. This draft is the perfect place to ask this question of how do you define upside? We talked about it at the beginning, or at least I talked about it at the beginning with my board. The upside guys are all over the place. And Jim and I have gone back and forth with this of like, well, let me like Kevin McCullough. Do you say they don't have quote unquote upside versus like the Isaiah Collier? I'm going to let you take this first, though. Like, how do you define the upside and how do you see it like fitting into this draft? 
did it really affect the guys you put at the top or is it like more like me where you're like, even though I know they have upside to do more, I still can't put them toward the top. I think let's, we'll use it one more time. It's this uh, tied into fit, you know, it's about being fit proof, which is right up there with it. For me, I'm very simple about how I define upside. It's just simply prospects who still have the ability, the realistic ability to take a significant jump in their games, the levels of their games. So Kevin McCullough, for example, if someone thinks that he's kind of like maxed out to where the upside is, maybe he's a high floor type of guy, but the upside is low. But maybe it's also, let's say he goes to Miami. Miami, the fit that whatever I had there, I know everyone wants to go to Miami. I thought it's kind of a cheat code to say if he goes to Miami. But uh, <laughs> so maybe you got to find a, a better team or a better situation. Now, let's say he goes to uh, just a fit that's just great for him, where the culture clicks for him off the court, on the court. That adds to what the upside is because this franchise can get more out of Kevin McCullough or whatever the prospect than the next franchise. So the perceived upside is, is going to be different based off of where, you know, from team to team, if you're going by team big board. And I think that's what's difficult to do when you are not with the team is because like you're just strictly looking at when you're with the team, all right, how do they fit us? Cause you know what we do on and off the court, what we're looking to do, how they can be maximized to your scheme, your player, um, your personnel, and all that great stuff. So for this, I just think it's just simply kind of hedging the bet on who at their ceiling will be the best player, who has the tools and skills, and then ultimately the fit to get there, and then how much does the fit affect their development of those tools and that, and that skill. So that's kind of how I kind of a multi-phase uh, attack, I guess, of looking at upside. Yeah. I like the idea of being fit proof and that like factoring into it in the fit. I definitely totally agree with that. And I'll give an example here, but for me, upside starts with athletic ability and just measurables. I think if you find a guy with measurables and really good athletic ability, I mean, Wemanyama is probably the best example of this ever. Even if he didn't produce very well, like he's still a top five pick because you don't see guys that size move like that. You don't see his you know, level of size at all. So those are two things. And just go look back at the history of the NBA. Dudes that are over seven feet normally are the number one overall pick, at least the number five overall pick. That's just how it goes. I think most NBA talent evaluators think of that, too. Like if this guy's a freak athlete like LeBron, like Vince Carter, like Michael Jordan, then, yeah, we're going to draft him up high if they have ridiculous measurables like an Akeem Olajuwon. And then if they have the the coinciding, you know, two of size and athletic ability, LeBron, Shaq are probably best examples alongside of Victor Wominyama. Then yeah, those are the upside things because you're like, okay, if they can just do one of these other things, if LeBron can just learn how to shoot, he's unstoppable. Oh, guess what? LeBron learned how to shoot. He's unstoppable. Shaq, it's like, okay, we just need to feed him down low and get the right supporting cast of defenders around him. The Magic did it. The Lakers did it. The Heat did it. They just are able to figure that out. Because I think if you can find those kinds of guys too, they just do so many different things with that athletic ability 
And with that size that it's impossible to stop, as we've seen with Shaq, as we've seen with LeBron, even somebody like Vince Carter, like he, when he was on, he's just unstoppable. T-Mac might be another good example there. After that, though, like obviously you can't just say that upside is based on athletic ability and the size. I mean, you can think of guys like Stromile Swift, Marquise Chris, these super athletic dudes that just didn't work out. And that was their main selling point was there. I also think like super skills. And I think that's a harder one to define is like when you know somebody is such a technician and really is able to pay attention to the details. I know Kobe was a good athlete, but Kobe is one of the better examples of this. Jordan's a, a good example of this, although he was a, a fantastic athlete too. You understood they were technicians and they learned how to pick apart the game. The big fundamental, Tim Duncan is another one of the top examples of this where you're like, you look at the minutia of their game and you understand, oh, they can get to their spots. They can do whatever they want and nobody's going to be able to stop them. And I think those players are probably a little bit harder for people to recognize because they might not always have like super athleticism in more recent drafts. That's the reason why people were so down on Luka Doncic, right? They're like, oh, look, he's fat. Oh, look, he's not going to fit in in the NBA. Look, he's not shooting threes. They didn't realize again, he was a technician with those super skills. Jokic, another one that you realize, oh, positioning, passing, all these other things. He's a super skill. So for me, it's athleticism and size, those combinations, and then the super skilled guys, the technicians, you can call them as well. After that, I think you're right with fit. Like it has to be fit because those other guys, like you can fit them in anywhere. And even if you had like guys that you're already building around, you just throw them by the wayside and say, forget it. The super skilled guy or the athleticism and size guy, like this is a, a phoenix. This is a dragon. It's a mythological creature, whatever you want to use. They don't come along very often. We just have to take them and push everybody out of the way and rebuild around this person. And after that, I think it is, like you said, fit where it's like, okay, this guy can come in. And I said I was going to use Isaiah Collier because he's a good example of this this year. Say he was producing like 20 points a game. He's shooting like 37% from three. And he's like, okay, on defense. My Pistons projected to have the number one pick. He is not going to work out in Detroit if Detroit picks him at number one overall, right? They already got Cade. I guess they're just going to throw away Ivy. The team is a mess. The big man situation, it's center when Duran's out is a mess. Lassar is still here. And even if Collier starts to produce and the three-point shot is off, again, Collier can't come to Detroit. He's never going to work out because the spacing's already an apocalypse here. So I think that that's the third thing for me with upside. It's like, yeah, the, the fit has to come into play after that if this prospect doesn't have these other things in their pool bag or in their profile. There's one thing I do want to ask before we do wrap up because you brought up uh, one of my favorite players to scout. And this is one of someone that um, is always a reminder and a learning lesson for me is Marquise Chris. Like he, I think he's the perfect player for what you described as we talk about you looking for upside. Like the physical tools is a 6-9 long, is a 7-1 wingspan. Super explosive, quick twitch athlete, probably one of the best athletes in that draft up there with um what year was that? That was a Ben Simmons draft. Uh yeah, so up, up there with Ben Simmons being one of the best uh, athletes in that class. It's also one that was a gazelle running the floor, 
a vertical lob threat, play finisher, um, shot blocker. Stoney could be a projectable shooter and some shot creation. This, the upside was there for him to just be a really fantastic two-way big. Um, a lot of it, you know, some of it was some of the maturity off the floor is a little bit, a little bit of a concern with that. And then also he went to goes to Phoenix. Fit there, you know, at that but especially at that time, Phoenix still trying to figure some things out. And I say that all that to say is he gets the Golden State later in his career. He's still a young guy, but when he gets the Golden State, um, he was showing some really legitimate things like, all right, like Golden State has found someone. I'm seeing if I can find what he did in Golden State, uh, those numbers real quick. I'm not sure if I'll get to them that quickly, but he looked like a long-term rotation piece for um, Golden State once he finally uh, got there. And that's like the best that, that he ever really looked. And it's just for a reason they didn't end up bringing him back. But it, I think if he would have got to a place like Golden State first, well, yeah, there he is. Yep, yep. If he would have got to a place like Golden State first, and that's at 22 years old, he gets to Golden State after coming on the league at 19 and, um, you know, two years in Phoenix, like you see there, and in Houston and, and Cleveland as well. So if you get to a more stable situation like that, and that's uh, amongst the most minutes he played, 20 minutes per game, 9.3 points, 6.2 rebounds, nearly two offensive rebounds, nearly two um, uh, assists per game, 1.8 stops. So, like, he was a, a productive rotation player for uh, for that squad, you know? And, um, you know, fit and timing really could be everything to be able to realize and maximize that potential. Marquise Chris might also be another example of, like, stop trying to force a three-point shot on somebody and don't expect it to come around right away because that's probably the reason, no, not the reason, but one of the main reasons why in Phoenix they just dumped him after a while. I was like, this guy's never going to shoot, and it's like, Maybe you shouldn't have put those expectations on him uh, right away. Yep. We will have to do that in a future episode, too, of like, be patient with shooting something along those lines. So, Jam, do you have anything else to add before we get out of here? No, this was great as usual. I can't wait to kind of revisit our boards. This is, I know, for me, the first one. And, and um, for you, Steve, I guess, this is the first one you share publicly. No, uh, this is a, well, this board went through three drafts, I think. Um, and then, yeah, this will be the first one I'll share publicly for this draft class. Nice. So looking forward to revisiting this and going through, um, you know, this evaluation process. Same. It's always great to see how the board moves and changes and guys that go up, guys that go down, guys that get eliminated because they say they're going to come back or another reason. And then you have to put somebody else in their place, which has already happened to me for uh, a couple different players and then i have my board to 100 it will show up this month sometime on resball.substack.com so you see my big board all the way to 100 you'll get my tiers breakdown and then i'll profile like one or two guys in each tier just to give you an idea of where my head's at and what i see in our game so jam do you have any other work that you want to promote that's coming up on draft digest or anywhere else so just um wrote about my in-person visit to scout Creighton and Georgetown, a great game, especially for obviously Creighton, who got the dub in that matchup. But Trey Alexander and Baylor Sharman, both resume games, big games for them 
on the road against Georgetown. So I wrote a bit of, uh, about that and also why Baylor Siren, to me, continues to be the best Creighton prospect. We'll see what happens at the end of the day. But for me right now, he is my top-rated Creighton prospect, so I'll have that. And I'm um, actually trying to figure out what I'm going to write about next. Um, maybe it could be something on Filipowski because these past two games, he's shown everything you want for him to be uh, your hope for as an NBA player. So not quite sure what I will be writing about uh, now. We'll kind of see that, but you can check my most recent stuff out on Creighton and Georgetown. Yeah, definitely follow this man on Twitter. Go to Draft Digest. Did I ask you for your Twitter handle one last time? Or am I becoming yeah. an old man and forgetting things? <laughs> Let me go ahead and get that out. Guinness Jam on the boards on Twitter, X, whatever you prefer to call it. Yeah, I refuse to call it X. <laughs> when I was in the fifth grade, I remember me and my friends like wanted to give each other nicknames. And I was really into the video game Mega Man X and I wanted to be called X. So I'm like, wait, <laughs> the guy that runs that company now was like me when I was in the fifth grade. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, thank you everybody for listening. We'll catch you next time. We'll go next.